The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on American POTUS Presidential Afterlives. While in office, we debate and critique just about everything they do. When they pass on, either in office or long after, the conversation about their policies might lighten up a bit, but the controversy rolls on. Washington's last wishes, Adams and Jefferson's divine timing, Lincoln's eventual resting place, Reagan's final closing scene. They all reflect the impact these leaders had on us and how we remember them to this day. An intriguing and entertaining conversation about how we look at our president after our president has departed on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brun. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. By sharing their challenges, their stories, and their personalities, we hope to add some clarity and perspective for today's heated political conversations. This past Christmas, one of our American POTUS board members gave me a crazy-looking book called Dead Presidents, an American Adventure into the Strange Deaths and Surprising Afterlives of Our Nation's Leaders. Well, as soon as I read it, I knew we had to have the author on the show. Brady Carlson's clever and funny tales of what happens to the legacies and bodies of our chief executives is just downright fun. In addition to the book, you may have heard him on one of many NPR programs, such as All Things Considered, Weekend Edition, or Here and Now. Or you may have heard his terrific podcast called Cool Weird Awesome. If you'd like to know more about all that Brady has going on, you can simply visit AmericanPOTUS.org and we'll have a link there. Brady, we're thrilled you're here. Welcome to American POTUS. I am thrilled to be here. It's so great to talk with you. Thanks so much, Brady. I, I too, really enjoyed this book. Uh, Let's start where you start with George Washington. How did Washington's death and the responses to it help set the precedent for all future presidents? Well, George Washington was the model in so many ways for how the modern presidency is supposed to be, right? He's the, you know, he's the first one. So everybody is picking up at least some of the precedents that he put down. And and that turned out to be true with his death, too, in all the good ways and, and all the not so good ones, too. I mean, in some ways, there's this big question about presidents that we haven't really resolved today. You know, originally the idea was, and this was what Washington believed, that you know, a president is a person who enters public service, and then when that service is complete, when their term is over, they're a private citizen again. And that is definitely not how it played out for him. I mean, Washington was really just too big a public figure. People were trying to memorialize him before he even died. And he tried to push back on that and tried to say, you know, I'm just one person among many here. People were just like, they didn't want to believe that. They kind of, they didn't want to turn him into a king. They didn't want that model again, but they did like the idea of having this huge figure. They wanted their country to be successful and countries need heroes. And George Washington was as heroic a figure as there was at that time. So when he passed away in 1799, uh, they believe it was from epiglottitis now. So basically his, his throat just closed up over his breathing tubes. The country didn't find out quite right away, but when they did, they lost it. Uh, not only was there the the official funeral at Mount Vernon, there were mock funerals all over the country. There were stories at the time that there was a shortage of black cloth in some parts of the country because people were mourning so much. You know, people were shooting off cannons over the Potomac River out of respect and in memory of George Washington. And I mean, it seemed kind of so big that it was hard to even believe. But coming back to that idea of, you know, the country needed heroes, you know, we wanted the country to be successful. And at that time, you know, the United States was not that united. You know, it was regional in a lot of ways. There were people, you know, this the whole question about slavery didn't erupt into a civil war until much later. But there were people talking about, you know, they had different views about 
whether slavery should be part of the United States. They had different beliefs about, you know, the the size and scope of the federal government. And and there was no guarantee that this was an experiment that was going to succeed. George Washington was seen by all of the different factions as the glue that was holding it all together. And then all of a sudden he was gone. So what they did essentially was, and, and maybe they didn't realize they were doing it, was they they made him into a larger-than-life, larger-than-mortality figure who they could hang on to even after he had died. So, you know, this is when you have the that that it's a painting and the inside of the dome of the u.s capitol but it's shown up in other media as well the apothesis of washington you know george washington a mortal can't end up as a demigod but in the american civic religion all of a sudden now he is kind of a mythical figure you know he's welcomed into heaven by a chorus of angels and you know you start to see these mythical stories about george washington and the cherry tree you know people writing biographies that are as much about building this myth as they are about telling what actually happened during his life. And so you, you have this tendency against that idea of the private citizen entering a public job and doing their best and then going back to being private. And instead you have presidents who carry on as public figures and in a lot of ways. That's what my whole book ended up being about. You know, it, it really just ended up about, you know, these guys all pass away as we all eventually do. But they had to keep working because they belong to everybody forever. Well, let's stay in that founding generation for a moment with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. They famously died on the exact same day, July 4th, 1826. So how did you find their simultaneous death on America's birthday have been viewed over the years? It really is kind of the the perfect Hollywood ending, right? I mean, you have these two figures who they, they start out in very different places and they wind up becoming very close. You know, the, the fiery Massachusetts politician giving the, the big speech to convince people to vote for independence and Thomas Jefferson, who literally writes the declaration of independence and they help build this new country and this new government. And then, you know, they become political rivals. They, they get out of touch. They kind of feud. They're, they, they become the heads of the two big parties and, and they become real political opponents. They don't speak. They don't write to each other. And then late in life, they reconnect and become friends again. And so to have them both pass away, not only on the same day, so their, two, their twin stories end at the same time, but it happens on the 50th anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, you know, which they both played such huge roles in making happen for a lot of people at that time was another, you know, it was another moment for myth making. You know, neither one of them was as huge a figure in the public imagination as George Washington was. I mean, who could be? But it was a sign to a lot of people that Providence is shining down on the United States. Because why else would these two people pass away on this one blessed anniversary day? The two people who have these stories together, the two people are intertwined in so many ways. Why would that not happen? You know, any other way, if it wasn't, you know, the hand of the almighty driving our destiny as a country. The fact that the next president to pass away, James Monroe, the fifth president, was also on a July 4th, and that the next president to pass away after that, James Madison, could have passed away on July 4th. The doctors were talking to him about prolonging his life just long enough to kind of keep the streak going. Uh, he turned him down, but like they could have kept that going, and that would have just been another sign to people like, there's something you know dramatic and important and historical going on with our country, you know, the, the United States has always seen itself as different in a lot of ways from some of the countries that, you know, were early on a, a part of its history and its culture and its upbringing. And this was another sign to many Americans then and even now that, you know, there's there's something unique about our experience and on our culture. Well, let's turn from those um, amazing historic founders to a president who only served for 30 days, William Henry Harrison. Uh, he died maybe because during his long inaugural address, he did it in the cold without a coat. And I was interested, I've always been interested in why he would have done that. What did you find out that helps explain that perhaps deadly decision he made on Inauguration Day? 
Well, now, now that I have kids, I, I, I always wondered whether like William Henry Harrison's parents had told him to wear a coat. And so he had to just <laughs> rebel against them and say, I yes. won't. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, Harrison is one of those guys who's sort of a politician, but is really kind of at heart sees himself as a military man. Like all the politics was really mostly going on around him. Nobody at his time thought of him as the engine of the Whig party, even though technically he was the leader of it. Like he was a soldier, you know, he was, a, he was a military leader who went into the legislature, who served as a governor, who then served as president, at least for a little while. So in a lot of ways, Harrison continued to live the way that he'd lived when he was out in the field fighting battles. Like he just put on whatever he was wearing. He was not real big into the pomp and circumstance. And that was, of course, a big part of his campaign was he was his people were trying to portray his opponent, then President Martin Van Buren, as an aristocrat and that Harrison was you know, a man of the people, you know, he drank hard cider and and he didn't get all dressed up. He didn't put on wigs. He didn't put on airs. And so part of it really was that habit. The, the other part of it, I think, was that he recognized there was a certain element in the sort of Washington, D.C. political culture that just saw him as a dope, you know, he he didn't dress up. He wasn't fancy. He was so therefore he like he was kind of a loser. You know, he was he was just sort of a puppet for Henry Clay and the other Whigs to control. And he really did want to prove that he was worthy of this office. So, you know, he gives this immense speech that's hours and hours long and goes deep into Roman history. And I mean, nobody's come close to this speech. Uh, and and it is bad weather and he is out there without a coat like he also wants to prove he's the oldest president ever elected up to that point. He wants to show he's up to the job, which almost certainly led to him catching cold. The documents that I've read suggest that he actually seemed to get sick a couple of times while president. So it may have been that he caught a cold and then recovered and then caught something else. There's also a school of thought that his death was at least partially caused by the dangers of the water and sewer system in Washington, D.C. at the time. Harrison is not the only president who dies in this period. I mean, James K. Polk also died of cholera. Zachary Taylor died of some kind of intestinal ailment. And it's that's all within about 10 years. So there's a thought that in this very short period of time, all these presidents are dying from similar ailments. The common link being that they lived in a place where the water was just not safe to drink and people got sick and often died. It's interesting, too, that whether or not that piece is true, the, the story about the coat and the cold weather and the pneumonia has lingered to the point that when William Henry Harrison's own grandson, Benjamin, became president, it was kind of a crummy day when he was inaugurated and he had on layers and layers of clothes <laughs> right. and he did not want to have anything like what happened to his grandfather happen to him. He wanted to stick around for the full four years. I was thinking when you're talking about the water, I, I believe that is usually listed as the possible cause of death of President Lincoln's son in the White House, Willie, from drinking the, the tainted water. So that was not a good place. Not a very healthy place at times in Washington, D.C. in that era, for sure. I mean, it was a cold building and there's bad water. And then we learned later during the Andrew Johnson administration that there were, you know, rats running up and down the place. So that and of course, you know, it's sort of the 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 classic stories of Washington, D.C. is the swamp city. So, you know, lots of real health hazards there for a president. So uh, speaking of Lincoln, after his assassination, his body was on a train. It went a circuitous route around the nation to go back to Springfield. Once in Springfield, it moved to several different tombs. It was stored at one point under spare lumber, as you tell us. And of course, it was almost stolen. Why was it so hard to lay the great emancipator to rest? Yeah, the uh, the afterlife of Abraham Lincoln was um, a hot mess for a long time. Uh, you know, I mean, first his body was put on display partly out of mourning because there were a lot of people who wanted to say goodbye to him and they wanted to do it in public, often in the same buildings in the same cities where he had visited and spoken when he took his train trip from Springfield, Illinois to Washington, D.C. when he became president. So uh, the Secretary of War at the time, Edwin Stanton, thought that this would be taking Lincoln full circle. 
What he really wanted to do, though, was he wanted to, at least in the public's imagination, rub it in the faces of the defeated Confederate states. He wanted it known that no matter who actually pulled the trigger, it was the South and their war against the United States of America that killed Abraham Lincoln and turned him into a martyr. So he wanted that body out there to show everybody what was what. And uh, so there was, a, I mean, it was a long trip and they, they had to do a lot of embalming. And eventually, because it was such a long trip and nobody's going to go on a long public trip like that without at least a little deterioration. They started to put more and more fragrant flowers around his remains just so that people wouldn't notice quite what was going on. And then there was a temporary tomb because, of course, they hadn't had one built in the cemetery in Springfield when he was first brought there. There was a controversy for a while that uh, Mrs. Lincoln was threatening not to take his body back to Springfield at all because she wasn't sure that they were responding to her concerns the way that she wanted them addressed. So at one point she threatened and she said, well, you know what, I'll, I'll take that old crypt that they built for George Washington in the U.S. Capitol and I'll just have him rest there. So they had to iron out some of those contentious disagreements. The problem was that people kept wanting to open his tomb and see him. <laughs> there were there were some structural issues and any time that there was any kind of issue with Lincoln's tomb, people would almost to a fault just say, well, you know, as long as we're here, we might as well just check if he's still inside. And it is true. There were two conspiracies around stealing Lincoln's body and holding it for ransom. This is a time when the counterfeit industry was kind of in its its real heyday. You know, what the original target of the U.S. Secret Service was counterfeiters. There was a, a cockamamie scheme where these guys thought if they stole Abraham Lincoln's body and hid it in the dunes around Lake Michigan, that they would be able to spring one of their counterfeit buddies from jail and maybe make some money along the way. It was almost a complete disaster because the authorities caught on to what they were go doing the whole time. They had like a guy working undercover and he knew everything they were up to. That said, they did almost get away with his tomb. The sarcophagus was kind of too heavy. They started to move it and they just couldn't get it away in time. Uh, and the authorities were on the scene though. They did not acquit themselves terribly well. There was a lot of shooting in the dark at each other, which, um, you really hate to see in those kinds of circumstances. So it was eventually decided by the, you know, the remainder of the Lincoln family, which was his son, Robert, at that point. Um, he knew of industrialists, very wealthy, important people who had ha had chosen to had their tombs encased in concrete because they were worried somebody who hated them would come in and somehow get a hold of their remains and do something to them. And so he said, you know what, enough is enough. So we're going to put Abraham Lincoln in concrete and we're going to put him under the tomb. So when you go to the cemetery now, you see a sarcophagus or what looks like a sarcophagus. And it says Abraham Lincoln, but he's actually 12 feet below. And that's that's there's there, you're, you're looking at nothing, really. <laughs> um, and so, you know. It, Abraham Lincoln is one of those presidents who it's been really hard for people to let go of. That was physically true back in the 1860s and 70s, unfortunately. But culturally, a lot of people have just hung on to him. And, and you can understand why. I mean, he's a, you know, a big part of the American story as we have long understood it. And so he has lingered in a way that few other presidents have. Yeah, I was in Springfield for a while and he is everywhere. And everyone there is a historian. I will say that the Lincoln Library and Museum in Springfield has those tools that the, the grave robbers used that night as part of their collection. And also, I think the only remaining photo of Lincoln in the casket. So I think at some point, Stanton stopped the practice of allowing photography. And I'm trying to remember the story on that. But one of those was found tucked away in a collection at the Lincoln Library at one point. So that... Uh, Still a bit ghoulish. Every time, as you said, I was always amazed how many times they opened uh, that poor casket and then uh, disturbed the poor man's rest over the years. It really is fascinating how much people wanted to see the real, genuine article. You know, I mean, the last time they opened it was right before they they poured the concrete in, 
And uh, the last surviving witness of that moment, I believe, lived into the 1960s. So, you know, it was just kind of carried almost a century after Lincoln was gone. There were still people who could say, I saw his face for myself. So another president uh, shot down was President Garfield. And you tell that story. It's a really tragic one. Why is it believed that what truly killed President Garfield was the treatment he received from his doctors? Well, it was something that people didn't want to believe because when his assassin went on trial, his defense was, I only shot the president. The doctors are the ones who killed him. Of course, you know, that didn't fly in court. He, he was eventually put to death for assassinating President Garfield. But what we've learned since is that the doctors were, how do I put this nicely, trying way too hard to save President Garfield. He was a, he was shot in 1881 and this was not too long after the Civil War. It was a time when American doctors by and large had not yet accepted germ theory, you know, that 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 there were these invisible particles that could cause infection and illness and and it wasn't a good idea to introduce germs into wounds. In fact, there were a lot of stories of, of people in the Civil War, you know, the ones who were operated on more when they were shot and lost a leg or an arm, um, sometimes they died of sepsis. And it was the ones who sort of sat there in agony on a hospital bed or, you know, something like that. They survived. You know, they, they may not have had the arm or leg, but they, you know, they didn't die of sepsis. And so, what happened in this case was President Garfield was the most important man in the country. You know, you can't just let that man sit there in agony. You have to try and treat him. So the the lead doctor in the case, who sort of appointed himself, his name was D. Willard Bliss. The D stood for doctor because his parents wanted him to be a doctor. He thought that the most important thing that they could possibly do for the president was get the bullets out. And, and the bullets were in there. It turned out, and they found out after he died, that the bullets were essentially covered, that his system had taken care of them on its own, and that he would have possibly been okay if they had just let him rest long enough and, you know, find his way back to health. But Dr. Bliss and the other doctors wanted to get that bullet out, and in doing so, they poked their unsterilized, uncovered fingers into the bullet holes, which I'm sure was extremely painful as well as extremely dangerous. And the thinking is now that that likely introduced so many pathogens into Garfield's internal system that it caused all of the infections that would later lead directly to his death. It should be said, though, that also Dr. Bliss was prescribing a diet for Garfield that was not helping him. He uh, he kept giving him rations of whiskey. Garfield was, he had kind of a, a bad stomach, and so he, he ate really bland things a lot of the time, like oatmeal, um, adding whiskey and, and you know, the, the juices from beef and things like that were just kind of making his system feel worse. It was making it harder for him to rest and get better. It didn't help that he was in Washington, D.C. They were trying to cool him off as best they could, but it was the summer and it was miserable. And so as presidential deaths go, I would say James A. Garfield's is the one I would want to avoid the most. It was just an awful, awful way to go. And extremely unfortunate for someone who had been physically strong and vigorous and had a very curious mind. He was respected as, a, as a, an honest man in a time when political machines were very strong. He was beholden to few people and really could have done a, quite a bit more had he lived to fill out the rest of his term. At the American Museum of Science and Energy in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where I just happen to be executive director, we have a strand of President Zachary Taylor's hair on display. It was kept there after testing at Oak Ridge National Lab, our, our good partners. What's the story of Taylor's exhumation and the testing of those remains? Well, first of all, you have uh, the best dinner party story I do. that yeah. <laughs> I can 
of anybody I know. Guess what I have in my museum. (laughs) (laughs) Just guess. (laughs) But uh, Taylor's exhumation, what's fascinating about it is that it was like a century and a half after he died, all of a sudden he's back in the news, coming out into the world again. That's not something that happens. We have opened a lot of president's caskets, but usually it's like relatively close to when they passed on. And here's Taylor's story, which is, uh, you know, sort of the record holder by far. Officially, the story goes, Zachary Taylor was presiding over a fundraiser for the still unfinished Washington Monument in July of 1850. He was consuming cherries and milk because it was a hot day and he was trying to cool off, even though sort of the health people of that time were saying, please don't eat these specific things, including milk and cold cherries because it may not be very healthy for you. And a few days later, he became a dead president after having tried to help honor another dead president. The cause of death was listed as cholera morbus, which was a euphemism for something killed him, probably something intestinal. You know, there, there just wasn't, there wasn't a lot of specificity in that death certificate. So it was kind of always left at that. But of course, he died at a kind of a flashpoint in American history because his successor, Millard Fillmore, would go on to sign the Compromise of 1850, that series of bills that was intended to keep the union together. But a lot of people think it actually made the divide between the pro-slavery forces and the anti-slavery forces that much more pronounced. And 10 years later, you have the election of Abraham Lincoln and then secession and the Civil War. So along in modern times comes this author of historical fiction, Clara Rising, who was interested in the Civil War and had been writing about it and had come to talk with people who said, well, you know, Taylor's descendants were never quite sure that cholera morbus was what did him in. They were always thinking he might have been murdered. And so she got really deep into, she went deep down into that rabbit hole. You know, she she not only started reading up with, you know, documents of the time, accounts of what Taylor's final days were like, and started to convince, that started to convince her that this theory was more than just a theory. So she started talking to the authorities where Taylor was buried in Louisville, Kentucky, and saying, you know, there's something to this. We we really ought to find out for sure what killed him because I think it could have been arsenic poisoning. And and there's a lot of evidence in the historical record that suggests that it it was poisoning, that he was poisoned. I don't know quite by who, but uh, you know, certainly at at a volatile time like that, he could have been the first assassinated president a decade before Abraham Lincoln. And through sheer persistence and really pressing her case to the people who could make this decision, she got them to accede to this request. And and so they did actually go to Zachary Taylor National Cemetery. They intended originally to just take a few hairs out of his tomb, but they wound up having to take him over to break open. There was a, a tomb inside the tomb, really. And uh, they had to break that open and then get the the hair samples. They brought his remains back to the cemetery and then carried out that testing at Oak Ridge National Lab. And in the end, they found no more arsenic in his hair than in anybody else's. So it wound up being, you know, Clara Rising was mocked because, you know, here she went to all this trouble on kind of a conspiracy theory that didn't pan out. And so, you know, there was a lot of concern that, you know, why are we hassling a president who's been dead all these years for basically no reason? Uh, And, and yet, you know, she never quite gave up on that theory. And and a lot of people who have had theories about how presidents really died or things that have really happened in American history. I mean, they don't give up on those very easily either. What, what, why are there so many conspiracy theories associated with the deaths of presidents? I think it's because, I mean, human beings are wired to find patterns, right? There's got to be a reason for something happening. And if something big happens, like Franklin Roosevelt dies or Abraham Lincoln is shot and dies, it can't be as simple as he had a cerebral hemorrhage. Oh, John Wilkes Booth was disgruntled and shot him 
on his own. You know, there has to be something bigger at work when, you know, when you're dealing with an individual's life, you know, there can be happenstance, there can be random acts, there can be things that are completely unexplainable, but with historic figures, huge figures, people who their decisions affect the grand sweep of history, there has to be something more at work. And so literally every president who has died before his time, there's been some level of conspiracy theories at work. Uh, I mean, even like there was an actual conspiracy behind Lincoln because John Wilkes Booth did have people working for him. It was supposed to be a much bigger act uh, of political violence. But the thinking was, well, actually, maybe John Wilkes Booth was working directly for the Confederacy. You know, maybe there was a, a whole plot that was supposed to win the last battle of the Civil War. And there were calls, I mean, immediately after FDR's death saying, well, he was actually murdered in some fashion by the, you know, the people who didn't like the New Deal or didn't like the way he was running the war. Uh, Warren Harding supposedly was poisoned. And and uh, I'm honestly surprised, you know, maybe in a few decades, somebody's going to try and exhume him because, you know, there's there's always those stories about like what really happened to Warren Harding. You know, was his wife so jealous of his mistresses that, you know, when he was on this tour, you know, she did him in and just didn't tell anybody. So uh, and of course, there are more Kennedy conspiracy theories than than any one podcast can go into. So it's just these are huge figures and, and we want to make sense of something that just seems to make no sense. And so for some people, it brings to mind that there must be something else at work and and they derive i don't know if i'd call it comfort but they derive some sort of closure or explanation from those stories whether or not there's evidence to support them well speaking of jfk i, I lived in dallas for several years and went to the sixth floor museum more than a few times at the site of jfk's assassination when you went to dallas what did you learn about how that city's dealt with being the location of his assassination and just as an, another question related to that, I always wondered why I lived there, why Dallas had been kind of smeared so much by that assassination, but Washington and Buffalo had escaped that type of uh, the type of smear. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a, a contrast because it. I mean, you don't hear anybody, you know, who you know they find like there are people who they lived in Dallas and they would travel to other places. And they'd say, oh, I'm from Dallas. And, and then they'd hear someone say, well, you all killed our president. Like nobody says, I'm from Buffalo, New York. And they hear, well, you guys killed McKinley. It's just not, not how it works. I think there's a couple of factors. I mean, one is that Washington, D.C. gets a pass because presidents live there. And so, I mean, it's like presidents or the presidents live there. There's always a chance that they're going to die there. Uh, McKinley died before there was the era of mass media, really. So you know, McKinley is not a terribly well-known president. He's certainly not high profile now. And so he's become a lesser known assassination. And so, you know, unless there's some kind of Netflix miniseries about McKinley that somehow becomes hot, I don't think Buffalo's going to get that same level of scrutiny. JFK, on the other hand, was like the mass media president in every way. And so here's a figure. I mean, he's on everybody's TV. Everybody knows who he is. Uh, everybody knows kind of how he carries himself. You know, he, they know about the quips. They know about sort of the glamour of of what is now called Camelot. At the same time, there's this series of highly publicized incidents in Dallas ahead of that trip. So one of them involved Vice President Johnson. He sort of got stuck in the middle of this big crowd of people who were anti-Kennedy. And, and Johnson was media savvy, so he made sure to play it up. But the net effect was still the same. Here's this large crowd of people sort of yelling at, you know, a public official and people in other parts of the country see that. And they say, well, what, like, what in the world is going on down there? Uh, Adlai Stevenson, I think, had been attacked in Dallas, too. So, I mean, the image that the city had on the TV news was there's a violent mob in Dallas and it's stirring the pot all the time. Partly true, partly not true. I mean, at the same time that there was this contingent of people in Dallas, there was also a contingent of Dallas leaders, civic leaders, publicly elected officials, business leaders. And they They were mortified that their city was showing up on the news across the country looking this way. 
And so then when you have the Kennedy assassination take place in Dallas, people who saw those incidents before are like, well, of course. I mean, this place is out of control. They were going to kill him anyway. And it became this deeply ingrained wound for Dallas and, and a big connection that people who saw this, you know, very public act, the, the Kennedy, the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination was all televised too. It became this defining moment for the time. So people just connected Dallas to the assassination. And I mean, Dallas tried so hard to play down that connection. You know, people would come to Dealey Plaza and they'd paint that white X in the street where the second shot hit and and the city would remove it and then it would go back up and they'd remove it and it would go back up. The city never accepted this role, but they sort of recognized over time that this was part of the story now. So they they started reacting to it in the the 60s. They start this big revitalization campaign to try and show that, you know, Dallas is so much more than what you thought it was. And in the 1980s, the Dallas Cowboys become sort of ambassadors to the country. They're known as America's team. And that was like a big cultural moment that like people were rooting for something from Dallas and and the TV show Dallas too. You know, I mean, J.R. Ewing is not exactly the most, uh, friendly character in the history of TV, but like people wanted to watch him. They, there was like a different image of the city now. And uh, when I was there for the 50th anniversary of the assassination, the city's very pointed message was, look at how much we've changed from 1963. What we did was we saw something we didn't like in our city. We learned from it. We changed. And I mean, some of that is as much myth-making as this idea that Dallas was, you know, the problem all along. But, you know, the city wanted to have a different narrative. And in many ways, that's what they have achieved in the last few decades. That's very very true. And Nicola Longford, the director at the Sixth Floor Museum, was a good friend while I was there. And she has a, a challenging job, for sure, for many reasons, including all those conspiracy theories you, you mentioned earlier uh, that are constantly thrown her way. But I think they do a a very admirable job there. Let, let's look at, at modern presidential funerals, certainly JFK's and you know, more recently we saw Ronald Reagan's. They're huge affairs. How are those, those modern presidential funerals planned and executed? Well, they have maybe the best funeral service in the world, which is the United States military. Uh, by law, presidents, ex-presidents, and presidents-elect are the only people entitled to a state funeral automatically. Uh, anybody else who would get a state funeral, that would have to be provided for by law. Um, but they get one right off the bat. And and typically the U.S. military is in charge of it. Um, they have an official handbook that dictates a lot of what goes on, the large and small rules about how state funerals should be handled. The presidents don't have to do any of that, but they typically do. I mean, you don't usually run for president and serve in an office that's that high profile and then say, you know what, I would like to be left alone when it's my time. You know, they usually have kind of a point or two that they want to make on their way out. Um, And so while they can use that sort of template that the U.S. military has created for presidential and state funerals, they can change it in any way that they want. Um, and so these funeral plans can get enormously complex and, and then it's up to the military service people to carry out all of these different pieces, make sure that they're done extremely precisely according to those instructions. I want to say that Gerald Ford's funeral plan, which was kind of modest by president standards was like hundreds of pages long. Uh, Reagan's a great case because, you know, here he was the great communicator, right? I mean, he had been in front of the camera for for years and years and years as a actor and as a public official. So in his funeral, his vision of his presidential funeral, he rec- I mean, he'd always recognized the power of visual symbols, right? His campaign slogan in 84 was it's morning in America. Even if you weren't watching TV, like just the, the slogan alone is getting, you know, your mind's eye into that idea of morning renewal, rebirth, revitalization. And so he decided he wanted his funeral, kind of calling back to that idea of morning in America. He wanted the funeral at sunset, at the end of the day. You know, he he made that very moving, he issued that very moving letter uh, when he withdrew from public life because of Alzheimer's disease, saying, you know, I've reached the sunset of my life, but I know it will always be morning in America. And so here he is sort of 
literally making that the symbol of his funeral saying, you know, my time is gone, but I know America's great days are still to come. And, and you see those kinds of symbols in so many of the presidential funerals. Some of them are more subtle, but, and some of them are more personal. I mean, Gerald Ford wanted to have his casket drive by the World War II memorial on his way uh, on the, the funeral procession because he had served in the war and, and he wanted to, to pay his, his respects one last time to his fellow veterans. Some presidents, on the other hand, uh, you know, there was a story when Bill Clinton left, left office. Usually the presidents have a pretty good plan in place by the time they leave office, just in case. And the story was that Bill Clinton didn't file anything. And so they asked one of his spokespeople, why not? And the, the quote was, because he's an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> we talked about President Reagan. I started my career uh, eons ago at the Reagan Library. It was just first being constructed there in Simi Valley. Uh, which presidential libraries and museums did you visit while you while you wrote this book? And what did you take away about how those institutions are preserving and presenting the stories of those presidents? Well, I at the time that I wrote the book, I visited what was the entire list of presidents who had passed away. So since the book came out, George H.W. Bush died, and I haven't yet been to his. I'm sorry that I'm still out of date. But, uh, you know, I did visit the Reagan Library, and that is not only a fascinating museum and, and library on the inside, it is a spectacular sight outside. I mean, it's just gorgeous to look out from the from the windows you know even just in the hangar where they have that air force one and look out and see all of that beauty outside it's just gorgeous so the presidential libraries are extremely important and also kind of controversial they are important because the law says all of the records of a presidency belong to the country those are public records now some of them are, end up being classified for a long time but the idea still is Anything I want to know about an administration, if there's a record of it, that record is for all of us and we can eventually examine it and go through it and study it and learn about it. And that wasn't always the case. And the early presidents kept their own records and some sold their papers to the government, but not everyone did. So there are gaps. A, a few even had their records destroyed uh, some of George Washington's papers were eaten by mice, I think, when they were in storage. So the presidential libraries serve this important purpose where, like, there are places where we can go through documents. Uh, and the books that Robert Caro has written on Lyndon Johnson alone are proof that there's so much value in going through these papers. The controversy, at least as the critics I talk to describe it, say this, you know, a presidential library is a public-private partnership. The, the National Archives and Records Administration takes care of the papers, but the money is, for the museum part is raised by the president's people, the president's supporters, often by the president himself through a, a private foundation. And really, their goal is to present the president's side of the story. You know, they raise millions and millions and millions of dollars to build a really nice place for people to come visit and learn about their presidency. Are they really interested in showing the parts that didn't go so well or the parts that people didn't like? So the libraries have tended to play up the accomplishments and tended to play down the less popular decisions. Um, that hasn't always been the case. And some of the libraries, especially the older ones, have gotten more balanced over time. Uh, I haven't seen the Truman Library since its recent renovation, but um, in the, the previous mode, they had a very, very rigorous exhibit, you know, debating his decision to use atomic bombs in World War II. And the FDR library asks some very tough questions about the Japanese American internment. Uh, the Nixon library has that Watergate exhibit that the Nixon people just loathed when that was first introduced. Um, so it isn't always the case that they are, you know, shrines to presidents, but um, that's always the concern. And what I think will be interesting going forward is how the role of a presidential library will change going forward. I mean, the document piece now 
is different because so many things are electronic, like archiving and administration is different. There's just so much more stuff and most of it is digital, but also, you know, is this model of a public museum and an archive often, but not always tied to a university still the model that presidents want, you know, or is it something that the public wants? I guess we're going to have to see. I was um, director at the George W. Bush Library when it was constructed. And, you know, there, I know the president sat down with us and talked about those controversial topics. So we found a few ways, like in our decision points theater, to bring up different perspectives. So you can talk about going into Iraq and you have a whole exercise there where you hear reasons not to go into Iraq or you hear, you know, um, the contrary side of, of the handling of Katrina and so forth. So he at least uh, was was aware that those needed to be voiced in some way uh, at that museum. And I will also say to your point, at Bush, and I'm sure it's even more so at Obama, we had around 1 billion pages of emails alone in the collection. So that was a new thing, you know, fairly new thing in archives. And we were still trying to get our arms around it. I also will add one more thing. I've been, I was in that world too long. <laughs> um, um, the, the Obama model is really changing what started with FDR and, you know, later Hoover came into that system because now my understanding is the records at Obama um, will be either in, in, I believe back in Washington at some point, they've been in Chicago. That museum is, is fully private. Uh, and their archives will not be there, as my understanding, at least in Chicago. So I think now there's kind of a, a split. As you said, the records, since the Presidential Records Act went into effect with Reagan, uh, those belong to us. Uh, but the museums, I think, seem to be tending to where there's not going to be any uh, National Archives role. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens down the road. Um, I, I can, I can get on that topic for a few hours. <laughs> so, so what, what other, uh, pre, what presidential sites you went to other than say presidential libraries most impressed you with how they handled difficult topics surrounding their president? I mean, I will say that the, the model for me was, uh, seeing the way that the FDR library handled the Japanese American internment that was very striking. And, you know, it, it did not paint him in a good light, understandably, but given the fact that, you know, FDR was the one who pushed for the presidential library system in its sort of initial model and got pushback from people, even in his own party saying like, you know, this isn't ancient Egypt. Why are we building pyramids, especially to a president who's still in office and why are we building it on the grounds of your home um, to then have a library that is uh, openly criticizing and, and saying, you know, the light of history has shown us that the, this was a bad choice. This was a bad decision. Um, that's one. I, I mean, I'm a bit of a Watergate buff. So I found the Watergate exhibit at the Nixon Library fascinating, especially knowing that it was so controversial that within the library, you know, you had a time when. The people who were working for the library were working in the building and the people who worked for the Nixon Foundation were working in the same building and like they weren't talking to each other because they had such strong feelings about this exhibit and what it said about Nixon's choices during Watergate and the, the way that the whole scandal unfolded was was just fascinating. But, you know, I mean, they didn't pull any punches. And, and in a lot of ways, like you do kind of want the model that you were describing at the George W. Bush Library. You want it all out there. And I mean, he's he's been an interesting ex-president because he has sort of said, like, I've made the decisions that I've made and I will let other people feel the way that they want to feel about it, right or wrong. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life trying to to show that I was right. Like I, I can't go back and revise them anyway, but like, I'm going to let that, I'm going to let my record speak for itself and, and history will judge me as it judges me. What, what did you find when you were researching this book were some of the strange things perhaps named after or named in honor of presidents? <laughs> there, there are so many. I mean, some <laughs> of them are very sort of standard. I mean, I, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's, that was very common sort of in, in the 19th century as the country was growing, there were new states coming up and, and then, 
you know, Americans would settle in these new places and they would say, well, who are we going to name all this stuff after? Well, all, you know, so there's like every state has like a Polk County and a Pierce County and all these presidents who are maybe not terribly well remembered now, but they all have counties and and Lincoln then and some of the the better named ones have stuff uh, named for them. You know, there's a lot of Kennedy high schools and, Mm -hmm. and Reagan name namesakes and things like that. But um, I mean, my all-time favorite is the Lincoln Watermelon in Lincoln, Illinois. That's <laughs> the only town that was ever named for Lincoln before he was President Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Uh, and supposedly he christened the town by either pouring some juice on the ground or spitting out watermelon seeds, okay. depending on who's telling the story. So they, the, like the Lions Club or somebody put up a statue of a watermelon. They didn't put up a statue of Lincoln. They just put up a statue of, of the course. watermelon because yeah. it's like that's their story. <laughs> um, I guess I like this the the foods that have been named for presidents. I, I would I was in Western New York visiting some Millard Fillmore stuff, mm. and there was a, a cafe just outside Buffalo that has a sandwich called the Millard Fill Me More. <laughs> which I mean, it's just like you know, if if you're East Aurora, New York, and yeah. like Millard Fillmore is your most famous citizen, like why wouldn't you of name course. a sandwich after him? And then there's like there's a dish called puree of wild ducks a la Van Buren, which I guess like he actually ate. And there was peach pudding a la Cleveland, mm. which I mean, Grover Cleveland, I, as I understand, was not a, a real fancy eater. Like he just wanted to eat simple stuff. <laughs> that was his preference. But everybody kept foisting fancy stuff on him. So he has his own peach pudding now. All right, Brady, just a couple quick questions at the end, just to have a little fun. Listen, to every great president's funeral, there's always a pretty great eulogy. So using today's funeral traditions as the benchmark, okay, I thought I'd get your take on who might be a good fit to say a few words. Are you game for that? Absolutely. All right, George Washington's funeral service. Who would you like to hear from most? His understudy, Alexander Hamilton, Billy Lee, his manservant, or King George III? Uh, D, all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I would most want Hamilton to rap. That would be, I think, my my first (laughs) preference. I mean, if I had to just choose one, it would probably be Billy Lee because he's, you know, the historic sites have taken a lot of steps to recognize the enslaved people who worked on these plantations. But to hear him speak for himself, uh, that would just be fascinating. You know, I'd I'd like to hear someone who, you know, he saw Washington up close and knew him. Um, but he also had a perspective on him that is is not often well represented in the documentation of people who knew George Washington. And so that would yeah. that would be very eye opening, I'm sure. All right. Next up, Jefferson and Adams, as we talked about, of course, famously died on the same day. But who would you rather see speak at the other's funeral? Jefferson on Adams or Adams on Jefferson? I would have to go with with Adams mm-hmm. on Jefferson. Good choice. <laughs> I mean, in a way, he kind of did give a eulogy without you know without realizing it. You know, one among his last words, Thomas Jefferson still survives, even though Jefferson yeah. had technically yeah. died a, a little bit further. I mean, Jefferson himself knew he wasn't much of a public speaker. Um, I mean, he he stopped giving State of the Union addresses for that reason. I mean, Adams was uh, was not only a, a much better speaker, but he was also you know like he had hot takes on people, you know, including people that he was friends with or that even he admired, you know, I mean, he, he sometimes had choice words, even about George Washington of all people. So, um, I I think Adams would really bring it if he were given the speech. Yeah. He, he, he let his opinion be (laughs) always. All right. Next up, uncle Sam Grant's funeral service. Who would you like to hear from most Mark Twain, the guy who helped him publish his autobiography or one of his most loyal generals, William Tecumseh Sherman, or, Robert E. Lee. I don't think I could pass up a chance to hear from Twain. I mean, he certainly didn't know Grant the way that Sherman did. I mean, those two really were tight. Uh, And and Lee, of course, had, you know, a a connection to Grant that was very unique. But I mean, Mark Twain, the jokes alone would be well worth it. And I'm sure even in a eulogy for somebody like U.S. Grant, like there would still be something worth laughing out loud at in that speech. Agreed. Agreed. All right, Theodore Roosevelt's funeral service. Who would you like to hear from most? Naturalist John Muir, William Howard Taft, his buddy, his enemy, then his buddy again, or Alice Roosevelt, his daughter? 
who said once he wants to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. (laughs) (laughs) It has to be Alice. You know, I, I will say Taft, I think is Taft isn't as well known. And, uh, and he, he could be very funny. It was sort of a more subtle humor, certainly compared to like Alice, but, um, you know, but he could be a very funny man and, and certainly very observant. He he would have a lot to say about his old friend and frenemy. But I mean, Alice Roosevelt Longworth is just one of the sort of like most American characters of any era. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> any anybody who can sort of, you know, when when Lyndon Johnson goes up to her and, and says, you know, I'm trying to kiss you and, and your hat's getting in the way. And she goes, Mr. President, don't you think that's why I wear the hat? <laughs> I mean, she, you know, she, she just, she would give it back to anybody. You know, she, she's the one who called Thomas Dewey, the little man on the wedding cake. If I remember right, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you can't sort of shrink anybody down to size better than that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, her eulogy for her dad would have been something. All right. Last one. Richard Nixon's funeral service. Who would you like to hear from most? B.B. Rebozo, his good friend, or perhaps his most famous White House guest, Elvis Presley, <laughs> or Ben Bradley, the editor of the Washington Post? <laughs> now, that is an interesting choice. Uh, <laughs> as much as I would have loved to have Elvis be sort of the first rock star to give a presidential eulogy, uh, yeah. I mean, that would have been wild. I I, you know, there's a part of me that would would like to have seen what Ben Bradley would have had to say. I, I actually remember watching Nixon's funeral live. I was in high school at the time. And I'm like, you know what? I, you know, it's the coolest thing I could do right now is turn on C-SPAN and watch this president's funeral. And, and under, understandably, I mean, at a president's funeral, like you're going to expect that the speeches and the commentary are all very favorable. You know, a few people made kind of oblique references to, you know, how he always fought back from hard times and, you know, he stood up when he was in adversity and, and, and things like that, you know, there's kind of a piece of me that would be interested in seeing somebody come to these events and go, well, you know, this president was also a real so-and-so here's all the bad stuff they did. Cause (laughs) I mean, you know, the families might want to like go in the break room at that point, but you know, there's, there is a lot of myth-making that goes on in every presidential afterlife, you know, the, the presidents are larger than life. They're, they're not as big as maybe they were when we were carving them into Mount Rushmore, but like, they're still huge figures in a lot of ways. And so there is this tendency always to, at least for a while, make every dead president into this colossal historical figure. And, you know, not all of them really are. And some of them may even be bad. And like, that's okay. If that's how it is, you know, they're, they're human beings like we are, they have virtues, they have flaws. And, you know, I I don't think it would be the, um, the sweetest funeral to have somebody get up and say, you know, here's the list of all the bad stuff they did, but you know, that's what they got in life. And if they are really living in this post post presidency, like I, I keep suggesting in the book, then, then maybe it would be fitting to have a moment and say, and now it's time to hear from the other side for a rebuttal. <laughs> Brady, this has been really interesting and a lot of fun at the same time. What do you have lined up next? I can only imagine <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I, I, I have been working on my podcast for the last few years. It's sort of a short daily story about an interesting item. There's a lot of history in there. I did an episode one time about Lyndon Johnson getting stuck in an elevator at the Pentagon. Oh, Lord. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I find sort of there's those quirky moments uh, in the news and, and also in the past. I've been raising little kids, too. And, and now that we're all starting to hopefully get out into the world a little bit more and, and things are hopefully getting a little safer, um, my hope is to get back out on the road again and, and maybe start, start on a new book. I do have a lot of new ideas, including some involving the president. So um, I can only imagine, too, where I might end up. Well, we look forward to whatever you have next. You've been great, and hopefully you had a good time on American POTUS. I certainly did. Thanks so much for having me. I've, I've had a great time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank author Brady Carlson for joining us on this episode about presidential afterlives. More information on his books and his podcasts can be found on AmericanPOTUS.org. And we would like to thank all of you that have made a tax-deductible financial contribution to support this podcast. 
In addition to this show, your generosity helps us develop new groundbreaking podcast shows and revolutionary outreach programs, offering clarity and perspective to today's political conversations. If you'd like to contribute, it's easy. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.org. We appreciate your help. American POTUS is produced by American History Studios. Graphic design by Prattler Design and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Abraham Lincoln. Quote, in the end, it's not the years in your life that count. It's the life in your years. <laughs>